Welcome to Office Hours with DPT. This series is run by the Dartmouth Political Times, a non-partisan online publication at Dartmouth College. We aim to host discussions about all things politics and current affairs with Dartmouth professors and community members. I'm your host, Dhruv Uppal, a 22 at Dartmouth College. On today's episode, we discuss renewed fears of a sovereign debt crisis in Europe amid concerns over Italy's rising debt levels. We also take a theoretical and historical look at what exactly sovereign debt crises are and the impacts they have. The date is the 28th of May 2020 and our guest today is Nancy Marion, George J. Records 1956 Professor of Economics at Dartmouth College. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Glad to be here. It's great to have you. So before we get started, I'm sure our listeners would like to know more about your past research as well as maybe some classes you teach at Dartmouth and your areas of interest and specialisation. All right. I am an international economist, and my specialization would be in international financial issues. I started out many years ago looking at the international transmission of disturbances from one country to another and how a country's choice of exchange rate regime might make a difference in that transmission process. I also looked at um, emerging markets in developing countries and how policy volatility impacted their growth prospects. Over time, I moved more into study and research on financial crises. I did a lot of work on currency crises, and in particular, the differences between uh, what we call expected currency crises, where the fundamentals projected that there would eventually be a currency crisis, and those currency crises that were unexpected that somehow came out of the blue. And I also worked on papers that showed linkages between, say, currency crises and banking crises or banking crises and sovereign debt crises. So I have been immersed a lot in financial crises. Uh, The courses I teach, I teach um, international finance. Um, I also teach the advanced seminar in international economics which includes both the trade side as well as the finance and international macro side. And I've also taught intermediate macroeconomics at Dartmouth. Thank you. Um, And I guess as we get into our topic today, it would probably be good to distinguish some formal definitions, of course, because this is such a a technical issue. So to start with, um, could you formally distinguish a financial crisis from a sovereign debt crisis? Yes. Actually, a sovereign debt crisis is a type of financial crisis. Economists identify three types of financial crises. Uh, One is a currency crisis, one is a banking crisis, and one is a sovereign debt crisis. And they all have something in common. They all involve either the inability or the unwillingness to keep a promise. So let me just give a simple example for each type of crisis. Um, In a typical currency crisis, what happens is that the government is unable or unwilling to maintain a fixed exchange rate. That is a fixed price of the foreign currency in terms of the domestic currency. So what happens is at some point, investors start to doubt the country's ability to maintain that fixed price, and they start selling the home currency in a frenzy. The government may try to support the fixed price, but they ultimately don't have the same resources as the international financial markets. The rate collapses, and that is a currency crisis. So that is effectively a broken promise on the part of the government to maintain that fixed price for its currency. 
The second type of crisis is a banking crisis. And again, it involves a broken promise, where at some point, depositors doubt the bank's promise to exchange a deposit for cash at par. So sometimes you see in a banking crisis, people lined up outside the ATM or outside the bank, trying to withdraw their deposits before the bank runs out of money. But it doesn't have to be a typical bank run like that. It could be that a bank's assets show protracted um, deterioration. So in 2009, for instance, a lot of banks got hit because of the housing crisis and the collapse of assets that were uh, basically backed by subprime mortgages. And so that deterioration in asset quality may call, cause banks or many banks or very important banks to become insolvent. And then that requires a government bailout to the banks. So that's the second type of crisis. And those tend to be very protracted in terms of their economic consequences. And the third type of crisis is the one that we're going to be talking about more today, a potential sovereign debt crisis. And again, this involves the concern that the government, if it's a sovereign or government debt crisis, that the government is either unwilling or unable to pay the contracted amount of debt on time. So let's say, for example, a government owes you a dollar of interest at the end of this month. If the government only pays 70 cents of that dollar, that's technically a default. Or if the government owes some principal and interest at the end of the month and they ask for a delay in that repayment, that kind of rescheduling is also technically a default. So that's the third type of financial crisis and the one that we'll talk more about today. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, and to understand this a little bit more, um, I think it might be good to distinguish a deficit from a debt because obviously getting into this issue, um, wording is very important. So if you could do that, that'd be very helpful. And the two are quite linked. So for instance, a government deficit is just the difference between a government's spending over a period of time, say a year, and the revenues it collects, collects from taxes. So just as a simple numerical example, if the government wants to spend $500 billion in a year, but it only collects $400 billion in taxes, clearly it has a gap of $100 billion. And so to finance its desired spending level, it has to borrow $100 billion. So that borrowing basically finances that deficit that year. So what is a debt? A debt is just the net accumulation of all past deficits. So let's just stop there. Let's see if I've got this right. Okay, so deficit is the difference between a government's revenues and its spending, um, and a debt is the accumulation of that deficit over time. Um, and a sovereign debt crisis occurs when you're unable to meet your debt obligations effectively as a, as a sovereign nation. That's exactly right. Excellent. Okay, good. We've got a foundation there. Um, so let's move on to what makes a sovereign debt crisis so harmful? I mean, I guess this is um, somewhat a strange question because, I mean, obviously your crises are, by very, their very nature, um, very harmful. But what are the particular downsides of a sovereign debt crisis as opposed to, let's say, a currency crisis or a banking crisis? Well, in a sovereign debt crisis, if the government can no longer meet its obligations, clearly investors don't want to lend to it anymore while it's in that state. So the government loses its ability to borrow. That's very problematic if the government is currently running government budget deficits or internationally if the government or the country is running trade deficits. 
can only import more than it exports if it's borrowing the difference. So when it's shut out of the international capital markets, and Argentina is a classic example, it's just defaulted about two weeks ago for the ninth time in its history, um, it's shut out of those international capital markets. And because it can't borrow so much, um, it actually has to try to rein in its fiscal deficits, and that generally leads to a contraction in the economy. Not only that, often a country's banks hold a lot of its own government debts on their balance sheets. So when the government defaults, then bank balance sheets are in bad shape, and the banks might also have serious liquidity or solvency problems. So you see how a sovereign debt crisis can immediately move into a banking crisis where credit markets seize up. And the net result is much uh, lower growth, usually a recession, so a contraction of GDP or growth for at least two consecutive quarters and much higher unemployment. Often the sovereign debt crises end up with either a bailout where the IMF and other countries come to the rescue and give the country new loans so it can start repaying its debt. But those new loans come with certain conditions which are quite onerous and often the, the country has to tighten its belt in order to earn the revenues to pay back the debt in time. In some cases, like Argentina, they did not want to accept the conditions for a bailout, so they were essentially shut out of the markets for over a decade. I now like to move on to maybe the risk factors of what makes a country likely to default on its debt um, and I guess going into this I assume that you know the higher your debt to GDP ratio or the absolute levels of your debt or no rather the relative levels of your debt um, the more likely you were to default but then I came across the fact that countries like Japan have been running um, debts of about 200% for a long period of time so what exactly is that distinguishing factor? Good question. I don't think there's any set threshold beyond which investors start to get really nervous that a country is heading towards a sovereign debt crisis. People used to think that a debt to GDP ratio on the order of 90 to 100 percent usually was a red flag and that would indicate some inability of the government to continue repaying its debts. But as you pointed out, for a number of advanced economies, that threshold no longer signifies a particular problem. So Japan, for instance, as you mentioned, they've had a debt to GDP ratio in excess of 100% since the year 2000, so for 20 years, and now their debt to GDP ratio is about 200%, and they still haven't had any problems raising funds in the international capital markets. When the International Monetary Fund looks at a country and tries to assess whether it's getting into problems in terms of its sovereign debt, it actually looks at a range of indicators. So debt to GDP might be one indicator. In addition, it looks at the maturity structure of the debt. In other words, how much of the debt is short-term debt that's going to be, need to be rolled over in the international capital markets. So for example, we'll later be talking about Italy. And Italy, about 15% of their total debt needs to be rolled over in 2021. So they're gonna to have to issue new debt just to replace the debt coming due. Another concern the IMF has is to look at the currency composition of the debt. Some countries borrow in a foreign currency. This was typical of the Asian countries in the late 1990s that borrowed a lot in dollars. 
and then they got in trouble because they didn't have sufficient dollar assets to repay those dollar-denominated loans. That's not true for Italy. They are borrowing in euros, their domestic currency. And then the IMF also looks at just the interest cost on the debt. And is the market increasingly charging a higher interest rate for that country to borrow? And that may be a sign that investors are nervous about the country's ability to repay and they want to be compensated for that risk by having a higher interest rate uh, that they earn on the debt. I know we're going to move on to Italy soon, and I'd like to just, uh, I guess, round off building this foundation of knowledge. Um, so I do have one more question on that, which is that maybe for someone who hasn't studied economics yet or doesn't really um, understand how to interpret, you know, um, things like a country's debt and whether that's um, prob- whether the amount of debt is problematic, um, could you briefly explain what um, indicators there are when looking at government debt, things like, I think, yield spreads are mentioned quite often, um, and how we might interpret these? Right. In addition to the things I just mentioned, such as debt to GDP ratio, the maturity of the debt, let's talk a bit about interest and interest spreads. So what is an interest spread? It's, that's something that we should look closely at. An interest spread is just the uh, interest rate charged on a government's debt relative to the interest rate that you could earn on a risk-free asset. So in the European context, for instance, the interest rate on a 10-year German government bond would be considered a risk-free interest rate. So if Italy has to pay more in terms of interest than a German government would have to pay, that spread reflects sovereign default risk. In other words, investors demand a premium in the interest rate on Italian debt to compensate for the potential sovereign risk on Italian government bonds. Now, both Italy and Germany have the same currency, the euro, so that interest rate spread does not take into account any currency risk. There is no currency risk. But if you were in Argentina, for example, and borrowing in Argentine pesos, then the spread, say, between the Argentine interest rate and, say, the U.S government bond yield, which is the risk-free asset in that case, that spread would include both currency risk, namely investors might get paid back in pesos, which would have weakened while they were holding the debt. In addition, that spread would include a sovereign sovereign debt risk as well. Okay, I see. Um, I think it's becoming clearer now, which is good. I'd now like to move on to, I think, going towards, you know, what's happening now in the current situation. And I think a good foundation for that might be to talk um, briefly about the first European sovereign debt crisis. So could you, for our listeners, briefly summarise what happened to trigger that and what its effects were? All right. Actually, it was really a series of rolling crises. So I'm going to start with 2008-9. And so the financial crisis originated in the United States. There was a collapse of housing prices and clearly assets that were backed by subprime mortgages collapsed. So the U.S. banking system seized up. That easily transferred to Europe because many of the European banks, large banks, also were playing in that subprime mortgage market. And so their asset quality also deteriorated. So the first crisis was really a transference from the U.S. to Europe of that financial banking crisis. Then in late 2009, Europe had its own domestically grown crisis 
What happened was you had a newly elected government in Greece in the fall of 2009, and that Greek government announced that the fiscal deficit was actually much larger, about 12% of GDP, much larger than had previously been known. That meant the Greek government would have to issue a lot more debt to cover that deficit. That really freaked out the financial markets and the interest rate spread on Greek government debt skyrocketed to the point where Greece was essentially unable to borrow at those astronomical rates. They were shut out of the market and it looked like Greece might actually default. Well, other European policymakers weighed in. They said this was a pure Greek problem, but Greek Greece should not default. Rather, they should tighten their belts and reduce their fiscal deficits in order to be able to continue paying off their debts. So the Greek government tried that for about six months, but they were not successful. And meanwhile, the other European countries started worrying that they might face some contagion effects from the Greek crisis. After all, German banks, French banks held a lot of Greek government debt, and if Greece did end up defaulting, that would hurt banks in Germany and France and other places. So eventually, they agreed to a Greek bailout. So the IMF, combined with the European Commission and the European Central Bank, all supported a bailout for Greece, but with onerous conditions attached, namely a lot of fiscal austerity for Greece. So what you have is by 2011, you have a lot of countries in recession, you have a bailout for Greece at the end of 2010, but now it's really having to face fiscal austerity and the Greek economy is just crashing. And as the Greek economy crashed, GDP fell, budget deficits continued, and the debt to GDP ratio went up even more in Greece. In addition, I think there were policy mistakes in Europe. A lot of European governments pursued fiscal austerity, that is, contractionary fiscal policy in order to limit the amount that they needed to borrow, but that just made their recessions worse. And the European Central Bank also wasn't as expansionary as the U.S. Federal Reserve. They were trying to fight some imaginary inflation at the time, and that worsened things. So a lot of European economies were in real trouble, and about mid-2012, it looked like the Italians and the Spaniards might actually default on their debts. The markets were very nervous and interest rates were rising. Finally, the European Central Bank, the president was of that bank was Mario Draghi. He gave a speech in which he famously said, we will do whatever it takes to support the euro. And then that actually eased the financial pressures on the Italians and the Spaniards. Ultimately, there was a bailout, not of Italy. They muddled through, but um, Greece, Portugal, Ireland, and Spain all received bailouts so they would not default on their debts. So that's where we were. Those were the crises in Europe in, from 2009 through about 2015. And eventually, the uh, countries in Europe started growing again, but they were really much more fragile at the end of the last financial crisis than they were going into that crisis in 2009. 
something else that I came across when reading on this topic was um, this idea that a country which has the ability to print its own fiat currency would never succumb to a debt crisis because by definition you can always finance your you can always you know finance your debts um, by just printing more currency to that end would membership of the eurozone and i guess um not having an ability to create one's own monetary policy would that constrain um a country like greece or i guess in this case italy's ability to respond to a potential sovereign debt crisis situation absolutely when countries these 19 countries joined the euro in 1999 they gave up having their own central bank and an independent monetary policy. The European Central Bank is constrained, so they cannot do outright government bond purchases for countries that need that. So the Italians can finance their budget deficits by issuing debt. The Greeks can do likewise, the Germans, the French, but the European Central Bank is constrained they can't buy that debt outright. They can only buy that debt in secondary markets, and they can only buy that debt in certain proportions according to the size of those economies and not according to the need of those economies. So there are great constraints on the Europeans. They understand that the European zone has structural flaws, and that's certainly not the only flaw that they face, but the political will has not been there in the past fix those structural flaws in the Eurozone. I think the European policymakers hope, as has happened in the history of the European Union all the way back to the early 1970s, that when there's a crisis, that'll sharpen the minds and they will come together and sort of patchwork try to fix some of the structural flaws. So each crisis will move them towards greater and greater integration. And that may continue to happen or we may see real problems ahead. It might be a good time now to, I guess, segue to um, the current situation. And I'd like to start by asking, um, how long has Italian public debt been rising? And how long has, I guess, the topic that we're here to discuss today um, been um, looming? Italian debt has been at fairly high levels since the early 1990s. So this isn't something new. In fact, Italian debt to GDP was about 100% at the beginning of the 1990s. It's very interesting because in order to qualify as a member of the Eurozone in 1999, you had to have your debt to GDP ratio of 60% or less, which means the Italians could never qualify. Their debt to GDP ratio was actually much higher than 100%. But the Germans said, we want the Italians in, and we think the Italians are making progress towards getting their debt-GDP ratio down. So they ignored that criteria and let the Italians in. And then the Italians got their debt, it went up, and then their debt-to-GDP ratio went back to about 100% prior to the last financial crisis. At the end of that financial crisis, when Italy came out at the other end, about 2015, 2016, the Italian debt-to-GDP ratio was about 135% of GDP, so quite high. And now with the coronavirus crisis, the European Commission is projecting that the debt to GDP ratio for Italy will climb from about 135% to over 160%. So we see a huge increase coming in the last month, half of the 2020.
In the lead up to our conversation, um, you mentioned that financial markets, um, something happened in financial markets in March that indicated that investors were worried about Italy's debt burden. Um, so could you expound on that a little bit, please? Yes. Well, people immediately saw that Italy was getting hammered by the coronavirus crisis. In continental Europe, it had the most cases of the virus and the most deaths. I think right now it has 33,000 deaths. So it's only exceeded by a country not in continental Europe, the UK, and of course, in the United States. So it was really hurt dramatically by the coronavirus. In addition, um, government spending in Italy had to go up, not only to help on the health response to the coronavirus, but also to support many businesses that shut down, to support many workers who had been furloughed from their jobs. And tax revenues went down because you don't have the economy functioning. So government budget deficits in Italy were also projected to rise dramatically to over 10% of GDP. So investors saw all this. They saw the coronavirus hit on Italy. They saw the e potential economic consequences for Italy. And they realized that Italy would have to go into the markets and borrow a lot more in the second half of 2020 and that made investors very nervous and what you started to see in mid-march was a rise in the spread between italian debt and government debt it wasn't a huge rise the spread was about two to three percent but it showed a, uh, a rising spread and then the european central bank had to step in and they announced a very aggressive a program about march 18th saying that they were going to buy about 750 billion euros worth of government bonds. And that calmed the markets and the Italian spreads started to decline. They rose again in April because there was some talk about a coronavirus bond that all the Europeans would issue jointly. But some of the European countries, the Netherlands, the Germans, weren't willing to mutualize the debt and help the southern countries like Italy. So when that didn't work out, the spread started rising yet again. And now more recently, and something we can talk about, there have been some new pronouncements which have tended to ease the financial uh, markets and the, ease the concerns about Italy. Yeah, we can talk about those announcements actually. So I believe um, you're referring to yesterday when um, um, von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, announced a 1.85 total um, trillion um, euro package um, for the budget between 2021 and 2027. Um, so, I mean, I don't know more than that. Um, do you think you could please explain um, exactly what that lays out and whether that would help a country like Italy? Yes, I think that's a huge step because up to this point, the Eurozone has not been what we call a fiscal union. That means there are no fiscal transfers, say, from countries that are doing well economically in the Eurozone to countries that are doing less well. In other words, German taxpayers don't want to be bailing out Italian, the Italian economy. There are no fiscal transfers. And that's unlike the United States, where if a state falls into a recession, there are automatic transfers. They provide less income tax to the federal government, and then the federal government is providing more transfers to that state in trouble. That's not the case in the European uh, Monetary Union. So what happened was that uh, about a week and a half ago, 
German Chancellor Merkel and French President Macron signed on to the idea that the European Commission as a whole, so the European community as a whole, would go into the international capital markets and borrow about $500 billion. And so they could borrow at low interest rates since all European governments are on the hook for that. And then they would turn that borrowed money into grants and grant them to countries that needed help during this coronavirus crisis. Then von der Leyen yesterday upped the ante and said, why don't we borrow 750 billion euros with 500 billion of those euros being grants to the countries most hard hit by the coronavirus. This is a big deal because it means that all European taxpayers within the European Union are on the hawk for repaying that debt eventually. So that really is the first baby step towards a fiscal union. Now, the European policymakers will say this is a one-off. This is just for the coronavirus pandemic issues, and we're not going to structurally change the way we do things. We're not going to create a fiscal union, but it is a big step, particularly for Germany. Now, all 27 countries of the European Union have to approve this proposal, and therefore countries that are very opposed to it. We call them the four, frugal four. So the Netherlands, Austria, Sweden, and Denmark are all opposed. They've already started to compromise by saying, we will jointly agree to issue the debt, but they're still holding out on converting that debt into grants. So we'll see where the proposal goes, but with the Germans and the French both on board, my sense is likely that this proposal will be uh, approved and it will be part of the seven-year European budget that needs to be approved by the beginning of 2021. Are there other things that um, the Italian government can do to, I guess, reduce its debt burden? Or maybe I'm thinking about this the wrong way, but improve its debt situation in the, in the medium term? Yeah. There's going to be a huge policy fight going forward because the typical way you think about reducing your need to borrow is to have fiscal austerity. That is to try to cut government spending and or raise taxes or a mixture of both. But we see from the last financial crisis that imposing fiscal austerity on a country that's already in recession is just causing it to go into a deeper recession with you know negative growth, high unemployment, and uh, banks that could be in trouble as well. So it's there's going to be a big fight about this. So I don't think the Italians want to go the fiscal austerity route. And then there are political issues too. You know, there's a lot of political parties in the, Italy that are Eurosceptic, and they say if we have to impose fiscal austerity, maybe we shouldn't be a member of the European Union because we're not getting any benefits. So what I see down the road is some deep discussions needing to be done to actually do some debt forgiveness for these large countries like Italy or Greece or Spain, or at least some debt rescheduling where you postpone interest payments or principal payments and you spread it out over more years. Um, some people, some economists have actually proposed a debt moratorium for a while where you don't have to pay any interest or principal. That's a Band-Aid approach. 
but the U.S. and China is not, they are not even on board with that. So that's unlikely. But I see the if you don't go the fiscal austerity route, which I think would be very problematic for Italy to try to do, I think down the road there's going to have to be some debt forgiveness and or debt rescheduling that takes place. I see. And assuming we go for that, um, I guess, worst case scenario, which would be something like a default or rescheduling, um, are there any specific issues to the Eurozone that would inhibit perhaps um, a bailout or, um, I guess, willingness to restructure that debt? It is going to be hard. I mean, it was one thing to bail out Greece, but Greece is a much smaller economy. Italy, for example, is three times the combined GDP of Greece, Spain, and Portugal, or I mean, sorry, Greece, Portugal, and Ireland. So the countries that were bailed out in the past. So it would be huge to bail out Italy. If we get to this terrible scenario where Italy actually defaulted on its debt, many people say that could end up breaking up the Eurozone. And, you know, there could be a lot of contagion, a lot of banks hurt, a lot of uh, financial distress across markets, and it might lead to the breakup of the Eurozone. We'll see. I hope that worst case scenario doesn't happen, and the European policymakers, along with the IMF, will come up with some clever ideas to at least uh, sustain Italy through this very terrible coronavirus um, crisis that we're currently facing, as are many other countries facing. Well, Professor Marion, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I personally really enjoyed this conversation. Um, it's a topic that I thought was very interesting and I didn't know too much about. So um, thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll see how this evolves and perhaps we could talk a bit more after um, something um, meaningful happens with regards to this. I'm delighted to join you and um, thank you for your excellent questions. And I look forward to a further discussion down the road. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for listening. Um, please join us next week.